Well, today I want to start a new series called Bad Boys of Easter. My name's Tony. If you're a guest with us today, I am the lead pastor. I am the OG, the original bad boy of Gateway. No, I'm just kidding. That would be Caden. He is the OG. I was going to call him the OG, of, but I didn't want to do that. He's a good boy. Um, sometimes, right, Mom and Dad? Yeah, sometimes. So we're going to talk today. Um, you know, let me address, first of all, non-believers. I know. It's like, wow. I thought I came to church. I'm going to hide. If you're not a believer, I, I just want you to know something that I know, something that I know that you find strange about Christians. Or maybe you've left the church and you're coming back and you had a really bad feeling about church and you're coming back and you're like, I don't know what to expect. Let me tell you what I know you find strange. Now, now Christians, just listen and sit back and just, you know, embrace the moment, okay? Don't get defensive or anything like that. But listen, here's what I know that you find strange about Christians. And it's this. Sometimes we say we trust God, but we live a completely different way. Christians, they're looking, they're watching. Sometimes they hear our talk, they hear us say trust God, but then there are moments in our life where we find it difficult and not live out what we say. We try to hide it, but there's this tug of war that goes on in life that even for those of us who are following Jesus at times there's a tug of war with God over my life and I struggle with that and here's the funny thing non-Christians or people who are skeptical people who are already judgmental about Christians because they think Christians are judgmental or whatever they hear us talk but they see this live out in our life And how do I know that? Because I hear Christians say, I know I should, but. I know I should, but. I know I should forgive that person, but, Pastor, you don't understand what they've done to me. I know I shouldn't be going out with this guy, but I really love him. I know I shouldn't be doing this or doing that. I know I should be doing this and not doing that. And I know the, and I hear this all the time in people's lives. And we wrestle with God on the should ofs and should nots. And those non-Christians who are watching your life, they see that struggle. Sometimes they know the Bible better than you do. And They're just looking for you to live it out. To see if it really matters. If it makes a difference. And they call it hypocrisy. They call it hypocrisy. And some people, maybe you're one of them, have stayed away from the church for years because, oh, those are just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, that's not fair. Because in our defense, and I'm going to give a defense... Letting go of control of your life is hard. Letting go of control of your life is hard. Surrendering your agendas, surrendering your dreams, surrendering your money, surrendering your life, surrendering your future, surrendering your time and your talents and your treasure to a God you cannot see. Let me tell you something, sometimes that's hard. 
It's hard to let go. It's hard to be in that surrender moment. And so the tug of war happens. And I'm going to tell you, it's terrifying at times to let go and let God. It feels almost unnatural. Because it is. Sin doesn't want to let go. And God calls us to let go. In the weeks leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, there were four men who Jesus encountered. These four men are forever written into the story of the Gospels. These four men forever have a part in the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And these four men, being part of the story of Jesus, each one of them had an agenda in life. Each one of them had this thing they couldn't let go of. Each one of them saw the Son of God standing before them. They had this unique moment in history to be placed in the presence of the God that created it all, in the person of Jesus, and they failed miserably in that moment because they had an agenda. They had their own life, their own control, their own power. Eventually, each one of them rejects Jesus, and each one of them loses. Now listen, everything that caused them to reject Jesus, they lost in the end. Here's the thing. As we go through these four men's lives, there's a little bit of all of them in all of us. There's a little bit of all of them in all of us. Because humanity doesn't really change that much. We have the benefit of being on the other side of these events. But as you hear these stories, knowing what you know today, you might be curious as to how in the world could these men be so naive? How in the world could these men be so arrogant, so stubborn? You know, so uh, how could these men just not know and not let go of their life? And we have that benefit here on this side. Each man had this incredible opportunity in the presence. And their pride, their, their agendas, their selfish ambition, their quests for power, refusing to give up to God cost them. Now, here's the irony of each man's story, and I kind of mentioned it a little bit already. But the irony, or poetic justice, if you will, is that each one had this opportunity. Each one refused to abandon their agenda and their self and give their life to the Savior. And each one chose their agenda over God's will. And in the end, resistance to God's will always proves futile in the end. That's the moral of the story. And I just gave that to you up front. We didn't have to wait to the end to hear that. You see, each one of these men, the, the, the moral of the story was is that resistance to God's will always proves futile 
in the end. And so in the end, each of these man's stories are part of the greater story of Jesus. Today, today I want to look at the first bad boy of Easter. And his name was, John, we're going to go to Caiaphas. His name was Joseph Caiaphas. Maybe you've heard his name. Maybe you haven't heard his name. He was the high priest. I'm going to talk a little bit more about his details of his life. But he was the high priest from AD 18 to AD 36. Now something happened around AD 33 that's just changed the world. And that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Caiaphas was the high priest over all the Jewish people and the nation of Israel when Jesus was put to death. And why was that so significant? Because this man played a great role in having him tried, falsely accused, and put to death. A little background on Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest, but being high priest for Caiaphas was a family affair. His father-in-law had been high priest, and he had five brother-in-laws who had been high priest. Now stay with me for a month. This might be boring for all you history haters. Um, but uh, Caiaphas, but it's important to understand the story of Caiaphas. For 40 years, now listen, this was unheard of in that time. For 40 years, Caiaphas's family held all the power, the wealth, the influence, incredible influence over the people of Israel. For 40 years, Caiaphas's family had the high priestship in their back pocket. It was the most influential and most powerful position for the Jewish people. And for 40 years, his family had it. Caiaphas was appointed in AD 18 by the Roman prefect, who was the prefect before the governor, before Pilate, who was the Pontius Pilate, who was the one who put Jesus to death. It's interesting that the high priest, you might think, is a religious figure, and he is in the Jewish sense, but he was also appointed by a Roman governor. So not only was he a religious figure, but he was a very powerful political figure. And to hold that position for 18 years, and your whole family have it for 40, these guys knew how to be the high priest. They understood power, influence, manipulation, politics. They understood it all. You might say, somebody's not liking the fumes. You might say that Caiaphas had a dynasty going in this position. So Caiaphas was the most powerful Jew in Israel. He was appointed by Rome. He was the only one, listen, he was the only Jewish official who could go and have a sit-down meeting with Pontius Pilate. Talk about power. You know, the Roman government ruled that area, but they let them have their own sort of internal religious government. But this guy could go sit down with Pontius Pilate. He was a grand negotiator, always the right place at the right time. uh, Caiaphas, often was envied by everyone because of his confidence and his accomplishments. There are some legends and some things that were written about this guy. Rumor has it that he did not want, you did not want to cross him 
You did not want to get in his way. He always got what he wanted. He always won because he refused to lose. The end always justified the means for this guy. And when you see how he handled Jesus, you'll understand why. He had the most powerful Jewish seat in Israel. He didn't intend to lose it. He was not about to give it up to some rabbi from Nazareth. He had incredible religious and political power. The Romans endured him, and the people followed him. He had perks as the high priest. Lots of perks. Lots of wealth that we could not even imagine. Caiaphas was good at being the high priest. He was a good politician. He played the system. The perks, the wealth, the power, the popularity. (coughs) Who would want to give that up? Who? I mean, who wants to let go of wealth? Who wants to let go of power? Who wants to let go of influence? Who wants to give anything up like that, that they had worked so hard for 40 years they got a dynasty in the high priestship? Who's going to give that up? Everything was going really well for Caiaphas until Jesus Josephson, I think it's there, who was a Jewish rabbi, Eighty thirty. I know some of you thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Because maybe Grandpa said his name all the time in the workshop, right? Or you've just heard Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. He was actually named Jesus Josephson. Now, why do you think his last name was Josephson? Because he was the son of Joseph. See, they were so simple back then. You know, uh, we had to look up how to spell Caden's name. You know, come on, parents, man. You know, and it's just like simple, man. Joseph's son. Joseph's son. So this was Jesus. Things were going really well until Joseph's son came onto the scene. Jesus had a problem. Listen, Jesus had this problem with the ruling religious class. Uh oh. Who fits into that class? Caiaphas. And Jesus was going all over the countryside. And Jesus was going here and there. And he just explodes onto the scene about 30 AD. Until all of a sudden all these stories start circling. And all these miraculous signs and these miracles. And he's turning water into wine and making blind people see. And lame people walk and deaf people talk. And and deaf people hear. And it's just like this incredible thing. And Jesus is going through the countryside. And he's here and he's there. They didn't have social media back then, but the the word was getting back to Jerusalem where Caiaphas was and the rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these upper rulers and Caiaphas, they were hearing about this incredible things that were going on amongst the people. All of a sudden, something's being challenged. One, their integrity, which they had none. Two, their influence... Jesus was calling them out. Jesus had authority. He had popularity. It grew every day. People began talking about him. And then they started to talk about maybe he's the one. 
Maybe he's the Messiah. No one else is doing what he's doing. Maybe he's the one God, because he's the son of God who's come to the earth and he's going to set up a kingdom. Maybe he is the king of the Jews. <coughs> the problem that Caiaphas and the ruling class had was Jesus didn't care much for them. So I thought Jesus loved everyone. Yeah, I think Jesus loved them, but he didn't care much for them. The reason he didn't care much for them is because he was constantly criticizing them for how they manipulated and used and abused their power and their influence and what they did with their authority for the people. That they were, Jesus has this one statement where he says, Come on, people, come to me. He said, Take my yoke upon you, it is light and easy. I think the Pharisees and the leaders were putting these yokes on people, requiring, you know, so much to give and so much, and just, it just was an unbearable thing for them. And so he started to criticize. In one point in Matthew 23, verse 33, he says this, talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rural leaders, he says, You snakes! Now you can argue with me if Jesus liked these people or not. I don't say that to people I like. You snakes! He said, you brood of vipers. Brood of vipers, brood of vipers. How do you say it? Brood. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Makes you feel wonderful, doesn't it? Now, put yourself in Caiaphas' seat and the ruler's seat. And you've worked for, you've been high priest for 18 years. Your family's had the high priestship longer than Jesus has been alive. And this young rabbi comes out of nowhere, out of Nazareth. And people say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here he's coming out of Galilee. Can anything come good out of Galilee? And here he comes. And he's telling them that they're a brood of vipers, snakes. He says, you're going to hell. They had a problem on their hands. And then there was this one event that happened right before Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the last time that was the straw. It just broke the camel's back. It was the last straw. Jesus goes and he gets this word that his good friend Lazarus has died. And so Jesus takes his time and he goes because he's Jesus. He doesn't have to rush to anywhere, right? So he goes to Mary and Martha, and he goes and he says, look, do you believe that I am the Son of God? Yes, I believe. Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Yes, we believe. And he says, he's just sleeping. And he goes into this tomb. Now wait, he wasn't sleeping, because they even said that he's been in there for like four days now, and three or four days, and, and it's going to smell in there. But Jesus goes in anyways. And he comes out with Lazarus alive. What do you think happened two or three miles outside of Jerusalem where the high priest is and the rulers and it's almost Passover and all these people are coming to do Passover? I mean, the whole world's coming to Jerusalem. When all of a sudden the people standing around who saw Lazarus dead and began to smell him coming out of the tomb saw him walk out brand new. 
What do you think happened in that entire countryside? It's, it, it would be worse <clears throat> than the COVID virus social media blow up. They didn't have the social media, but let me tell you, it went viral. And everybody started talking about it. And everybody's talking about it. And they go to Jerusalem. Did you see what Jesus did? Did you know what Jesus did? And all these people are going. And all of a sudden, the high priest hears it. And this one compassionate event that broke the straw. It was the last straw that broke the camel's back. This last compassionate event where Jesus goes and he raises a man from the dead. You would think that Caiaphas and the rulers would go, Here's my life. What do you want me to do? You ever seen anybody do that? I haven't. But they didn't. The religious leaders realized at that moment that their strategy of just trying to discredit Jesus wasn't working. How can you discredit someone when so many eyewitnesses see a dead man walk out of the grave. You can't. And so their strategy changed. Look what it says in John 12. Now the crowds that were with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised Lazarus from the, from, <clears throat> raised Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees, here they are. Here comes Caiaphas and his brood of vipers. They said to one another, look, see, this is getting us nowhere. Discrediting him, talking about his theology, you can talk about theology till you're blue in the face, whether I've got the right theology or you've got the wrong theology, but when you bring someone up out of the grave, who cares about it, right? See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. <laughs> and there it is. They showed their hand. They showed their concern. The threat of the miracle was enough for them to finally show what was really gnawing at them. It wasn't enough to now to just get rid of him. Now they had Jesus threatening their way of life. Their real agenda. Their real agenda was more about them having influence and power and control and keeping something they had worked very hard for to obtain. You don't become a Pharisee and a high priest easily. The Jesus movement was peaceful. The only rebelliousness that Jesus showed was always toward the religious rulers of his day. It was peaceful, but he threatened them. How did he threaten them? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, when the people began spreading the word, when the people began running toward him and throwing their palm branches down at his feet, 
calling him Hosea, you know, shouting Hosea and, and hallelujah and, and, and saying he is the king of the Jews. When that stuff started happening, they got worried. And so the religious leaders of the day could no longer hide their real agenda, their true agenda. Before they covered up their agenda with just conversations about theology, they, they got on him about his practice. You can't do that. It's the Lord's day. You can't do that. Why are your disciples doing that? Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Why are you doing all this and the theology and the practice and all of the things they got on Jesus about? They tried to discredit him and it didn't work. That is not what they're really upset about, is it? What they really were upset about was his success. His popularity, his influence over other people's lives. They were astounded by Jesus, the people. But they were uninterested in the Pharisees. They were astounded by Jesus. But the people were uninterested in the Pharisees, and that ate at them. It bothered them. His success threatened all of them. They'd worked so hard to gain their power, their wealth, their influence, their control. They didn't want to let go of it. And here is where we enter into the story. This is where you and I have a little bit of Caiaphas in us. Look at verse 30, chapter 11, verse 30, uh, 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. You say, Sanhedrin, what's a Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was the supreme council and the tribunal of the Jews. If you don't know what that means, Caiaphas would have been the head over all of that. They had religious, civil, and criminal jurisdiction over the people. You might say this. Imagine the Republicans and the Democrats from the House and the Senate and the entire Supreme Court getting together in one room. That's what the Sanhedrin was. They could do just about anything they wanted. They had all the power, all the influence, and so they had this meeting of the Sanhedrin. And they said, what are we accomplishing? We discredit his theology. It doesn't work. We discredit his practice. It doesn't work. The people are still running after him. We're losing here, guys. We're we're losing our control. He's out there calling us a brood of vipers. He's telling us we're going to hell. And we're trying to tell people that he's going to hell, but he keeps raising people from the dead. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go out on like this, everyone will believe him. Oh, there, what happens? Why is it so important that no one believes him? Because they want everyone to follow them. And then the Romans will come and take away. Listen, they're going to come take our temple And they're going to come take our nation. And here's the rub. If we allow him to keep on, it's going to cost us. 
If we allow this Jesus to keep doing what he's doing, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us everything we work so hard for. And here's where we're all just a little bit like Caiaphas. Jesus is going to cost me. If I follow this guy, it's going to cost me. If I go after this guy, it's going to cost me. This is why people are so afraid of church. Because there's a sense or a feeling that somehow the church is going to cost me. Guys, they don't like their women going to church because there goes my money, and there goes my Sundays, and there goes my children. And we follow Jesus at a distance because if we get too close, then we start to hear the calls to lay down more. There's a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, oh, here's our character, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing, he says. You know nothing, he says. Next verse. You do not realize that it is better for you. Stop there. You do not realize, and I highlighted those, those two words, realize and better. I want to give you a sense of what Caiaphas is saying. He's not saying that you all are stupid. He's not saying you all are ignorant. He's not saying you know nothing as in, you know, you all just haven't studied the situation. Here's what he's saying. The word that he used was logizomai, which, lo, which is a, a Greek word. It means to calculate and to give careful thought. That's what it means to realize. And then to be better is a word that is used that means to your advantage. What Caiaphas is saying to the Sanhedrin, he's saying, listen, you have not thought through this clearly. You have not thought how you can use this situation. You're complaining, 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 but there's a way to use this situation to our advantage. That's what Caiaphas comes in and says. And he has all the power, he has all the influence and they listen to him Caiaphas says you're not thinking carefully or calculating carefully on this matter and how to profit us it's all about them I want to talk about me I want to talk about me I want to talk about me and that's Caiaphas he goes on he says that one man die." For the people, then the whole nation. Literally, Caiaphas is saying, you don't know what you are talking about. You are not really given much thought to this. You're worried about nothing. This is a simple fix to this solution. Let's offer Jesus up as a sacrifice for the rest of the nation. Why should we lose what we have? Why should we lose our influence? Why should we lose our power? Why should we lose what we've worked so hard to get for this guy? Offer him up so that he die instead of the rest of us. Caiaphas really said this. And, and, and John, which is interesting, um, John talks about this in the next verse. Verse 51. John then lies, as a side note, picture John sitting there and he's writing this. 
I wonder if John grins when he's writing this. He's remembering this situation, and he's telling the story. I wonder if he grins, and he's thinking, Caiaphas has no idea what he's talking about. He says, he did not say this on his own, but a high priest that, as high priest that year, he prophesied it, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and he did. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, us Gentiles. And listen, to bring the Jewish nation, God's people, and the Gentiles, God's scattered nation, together as one. Caiaphas didn't realize what he was saying. In his, I got to protect, I got to preserve, I got to keep what I want, let's offer this guy up. He actually prophesied something that was about to happen. Finally, in verse 53, or 52, 53, yeah. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And we all know what happened next. Rome could not execute based on religious violations. So they trumped these things up. Caiaphas needed a charge of sedition. Jesus, they remembered, had claimed to be king of the Jews. I'm not even quite sure Jesus said that. I think the people did. But they twisted it and made it sound like Jesus was claiming to be that. And so they took that. So Caiaphas took that charge of blasphemy to appease the Jews. And then they took the charge of sedition to appease the Romans. And we know the rest of the story. Threat eliminated. Jesus out of my life. I don't need you. You're gone. But something happened. Jesus' tomb came empty. People, many people, began to witness and talk about seeing him in the flesh. They couldn't stop it. The disciples received the Holy Spirit On the day of Pentecost, next thing you know, all the disciples, all 120 that were in the upper room, flooded out into the streets. They were teaching Jesus, preaching Jesus. People were coming back to Jesus. They tried to squelch Jesus by killing him, and what they really did was just start a fire. And that fire burned bright, and it took over their world. here's the irony of it. Caiaphas, who did everything he could to hold his power, who did everything he could to hold his position, who did everything he did to hold everything he'd worked for in life, everything he cherished in life, he did everything he could to hold on to those things to the point where he even had someone murdered. Think about this. Caiaphas, was the only man in Israel who had access to the Holy of Holies where the oldest known copy of the law of God was. He was the only man who could go and look at the oldest copy of the law of God. And on that law it says, Do not murder. It truly is amazing the things that humanity will do to hold on and preserve what we think we deserve. And the poetic justice is that the Jews lost their temple. The Jews lost their nation. Caiaphas lost his position and title and wealth and his life. It was all gone. 
But Jesus remained. Here's what we learn from Caiaphas. Saying yes to God will cost you something, but saying no to God will cost you more. Saying yes to God will always cost you something, but when you say no to God, it'll cost you more. It always does. Because God's will cannot be put in a grave or on a cross. God's will cannot be buried and forgotten. God's will will happen. It will happen. With us or without us, God's will will prevail. So there's a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us to preserve at all cost. But here's the thing. When you say no to God, what you're really giving into is that internal pressure, that internal voice that refuses to give up control of your life. And that causes all sorts of external problems for you. Because when you try to hold on to something that God's asking you to let go of, it makes its way out into your relationships, your marriage, your workplace, your community. The internal pressure that to keep what you've earned, to keep what you've built, to keep what you've created, to keep what you've saved, to keep what you've accomplished, always drives us toward two distinctive behaviors. Preserving at all costs what is mine and saying no to Jesus drives me to self-destructive behaviors. I compromise my character. I'll compromise my morals. I'll compromise what I know is right and wrong. Why? Because I want to preserve a relationship. Or I want to preserve a habit. Or I want to preserve something that I know is not good for me, but I'm preserving it. I don't want to give it up. No, Jesus, you can't have that. And so what we do is we end up turning to self-destructive behaviors and we compromise those characters. Sin gets its word in in our life. Things that are not helpful physically, emotionally, relationally, we continue to hold on to them because we just don't want to let go. We say no to God. We lie to prop up our reputations. We cheat on tests so that we can keep up our GPA. We lie and steal to preserve at all costs what we feel needs to be in our life. But there's a second destructive behavior. Preserving at all costs will also drive me to others' destructive behaviors. Your sin does not just affect you. Period. And rebellious people who say, it's my life and I'll live it the way I want, that's fine. You have that right. But I'm just telling you, your sin and your saying no to Jesus doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. Sometimes God gets blamed for a lot of things in the world when if people would just give their heart and life to God, that thing would have never happened. We all have experienced this, right? We know that my behavior doesn't just affect me. So we practice others' destructive behaviors. We sacrifice our families to maintain a standard of living. We gossip and tell half-truths about people because we want to lift ourselves up and put them down a little bit. We want to look better than they do. 
Caiaphas had an innocent man murdered so that he could hold on to his power and his tradition and his religion and everything he thought was dear and near that he'd worked hard for in his position and title. He had a man put to death, murdered. Whatever you have, put at the center of your life, other than Jesus, listen, has become a little God to you. When you say no to God, you're saying yes to something else. And that other something else becomes a little God that you worship and you cherish and you hold and you got to have. And that little God can take over your life. Whatever that is for you, whatever you've replaced God with in your life, listen, it's already declining in value in your life. We, we hold on to stuff because we think it's so valuable. we got to have it. we got to have this to make me happy. It's got to have this to make my life joyful. If I don't have this, my life's nothing. And we hold on to this stuff and we say no to God, no to God, no to God, yes to this stuff. And here's what the, the funny thing is. The more we hold on to that stuff, the less valuable it becomes. I can prove that. I know that your greatest regret and my greatest regret is always connected to your and my attempts to preserve something in our life. Think about this with me. Your greatest regrets in life can be pointed back to some time where you were just simply trying to preserve, 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 preserve something that you thought you just had to have. A relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a habit, a job, a certain amount of money in your bank or in your retirement, whatever that is. You just felt like you had to preserve it. And listen, sometimes our greatest regrets are tied to those moments. When we attempt to preserve something, the thing is you've said, the things that you've done, the things that you've said, and the things that you and I have done, are the most regrettable moments in our life. And it's always tied back to the little gods that we have set up. The little gods always disappoint us. And I imagine toward the end of Caiaphas' life, he was disappointed in what he thought he had to keep. It was true for Caiaphas and it's true for us Anything that I put in the place of God in my life will always disappoint me. I get it. I understand. Not even Christians can resist that tug of war between me and God. That even some of the best Christians at times when God comes to us and he says, I need you to do this. I need you to lay this down. I need you to give this up. I need you to start doing this. I need you to start doing that. There's this tug sometimes. where It's like, I don't know. I really like that. (laughs) I really like that. Do I really need to do that? But Caiaphas reminds us that saying yes to God will cost you something, but saying no to God will cost you more. Our worship team is going to come. We're going to close our service down today with a song that I think is just an incredible testimony. Jesus, only Jesus. I want this to be a testimony for you. And if you're here today and you're Maybe you've never given your heart to, to God. You can do that today. 
And you can just stand where you're at, and we're not going to ask you to come or anything like that. I mean, if you want to come up and sit on the hog, I mean, I guess you could do that. Um, I, we'll, we'll hold it, but uh, no, just stand up where you're at as a moment of worship to just say, I'm laying down my life. I, I don't want to be a Caiaphas. I, I see Caiaphas in me that I'm holding on to some stuff that I need to let go of. And, and, and the little gods are disappointing me. And I want to worship the real God. Jesus never disappoints. He never disappoints. Jesus is a God who raises people from the dead, who comes out of graves and gives us hope. Hope that will overcome the sin in your life when you turn your life over to Him. So as we sing this morning, just stand where you're at as you want to stand. You don't have to stand, but if God's speaking to you, you can stand and sing this song with us.